Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. You are now entering the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, a show that uncovers what's fact, what's fake, and what's fun in the crazy world of Pseudo-Archaeology. Hello and welcome to the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, episode 136, and I am your host, Dr. Andrew Kinkella, and tonight, Augustus Le Plongeon. Who is this world's most interesting pseudo-archaeologist? All right, welcome back, my friends and family and close relatives and people I don't know. I'm recording again after midnight and i'm not laying it on the line i'm just recording after midnight because of course i'm late last minute again i mean do you ever just really want to do better and then you just don't and you just keep trying and half of you is like why do i bother and then the other half of you really thinks like you really think you're gonna be successful You know, I'm like, you know, I'm going to record earlier this time. Like, I totally am. I'm going to I have an idea. Like, I know what I'm going to do more or less. And I'm just going to I'm going to get this done. And then I totally didn't. God, man. All right. So (laughs) I bet Augustus Le Pongon John never had problems like this. Or actually, I bet maybe he did. I don't know. Anyway, who is this guy? Why have I picked him? All right. So this is kind of on that track I've been on recently of just kind of classic old guys in pseudo-archaeology, you know? I mean, we did Brasseur de Bourbourg a little while back, you know, in that in that vein. I, I'd like to do this guy. This is this isn't this is an interesting cat. His full name, Augustus Henry Julian Le Plongeon. And I know. Yet again, do I even have to say it? How come everyone in pseudo-archaeology has a terrible name? So now this one, I want to track him a little in terms of the years when he does certain things and his age, because he's born in 1825 and he dies in 1908. So he actually, he's actually, you do the math, he's 83 years old when he dies. And this guy is experiencing a lot of change. I mean, think of what the world is like and when he's a very young boy in like the 1830s. I mean, the 1830s, man, that's like way before the Civil War, right? And then he makes it all the way past the turn of the century into until he dies in 1908. That's a that's a big change in terms of just what the world was like. Now, this guy He's he's American and British, too. He's kind of a mixy, matchy of those. At the end of his life, he does spend time in New York. But even though, hey, is he British? Is he, is he American? You know, 
He's a citizen of the world, Augustus Le Plongeon. He's one of those dudes. He, he, he's almost like the Forrest Gump of pseudo-archaeologists. He like finds himself in these very important moments, finding very interesting things, very famous things. And of course, it's ultimately all for naught. Kind of. All right. So starting off with this guy's story. When he's 19, so this is going to be what? If he's born in 1825, 35, 45, 1844, when he's 19, this guy sails from England, I believe, to South America, right? Gets a boat, sails to South America, and is shipwrecked. The guy is shipwrecked, 19-year-old, shipwrecked off the coast of Chile. And then does he go straight home? No. He hangs out in Chile. He lives in Valparaiso. And whenever I hear the name Valparaiso, by the way, you guys, it's a city right in South America, of course. I always think of the Sting song Valparaiso. Anyone? Sting song Valparaiso. It's all like depressing and stuff. Although I heard Valparaiso is like a pretty nice town. A friend of mine, I think, had traveled there at one point. Anyway. He just hangs out in Val- Valparaiso for a couple years and, and he's his latest teens, his early 20s. And he basically becomes a college teacher. I think he teaches math, some of the sciences, this kind of thing. Right. And so it's like, hey, I'm in my early 20s and I'm now living in Valparaiso as like a college teacher. It's pretty crazy. So he does that for several years. And then in 1849, he sails up to San Francisco. Now, purveyors of California history, 1849 is the gold rush. So this guy at that point, what's that, plus four years or so? He's like 24, 24 years old. The dude experiences the California gold rush firsthand, right, in San Francisco. And he actually does the smart thing, which is instead of searching for gold, like panning for gold, he becomes a surveyor. And he actually surveys the town of Marysville, which is in Northern California. It's in it's in the gold country, but it's kind of those of you who know California it's kind of in the Central Valley, in the northern part of the Central Valley in in that. I, I, I'm guessing it's right where the Central Valley gets a little bit hilly. I've, I've been in that area before. And I, I think I've even had a relative or two who've lived in Marysville, actually. Marysville is quite a small town, even by today's standards. I think it's like 12,000 people or something like that. But Augustus Le Plongeon is the one who surveys the town originally in 1851. I just think that's awesome. I mean, already the guy's, what, 26 years old? He's been in a shipwreck. He's lived in South America for several years as like a college teacher. He's experienced the gold rush and he surveyed the master plans for a town in California. I mean, dude, say what we want later when, of course, you guys know me. I'm going to make fun of this guy, but that's pretty, you got to give the guy credit. That's, that's awesome. What a life, dude. Already 26 years old. And when he does his surveying, he gets paid with like land deeds for more land. And so he's able to then sell that land off and he gets a lot of money, right? So as a young person, he also is getting to be fairly well off. Now, you would think just there, like, okay, end of story. No, friends, beginning of story. Moves back to England, 
right in his later 20s and he just totally gets into photography now we got to think this is the 1850s right photography is in like its infancy right think of those you know those like civil war photos and this is pre-civil war the glass plates and the early early black and white stuff right still can be quite good quality you know for the time but early stuff and he goes way down the rabbit hole in photography he really kind of becomes a photographer he, you know this training that he does in england for a couple of years he really kind of becomes a travel photographer and think of the equipment that that guy's got to carry to be a travel photographer in like 1855 you know this is serious boxes of stuff and tripods and you know the the stuff that goes poof for any kind of lighting. I don't even know if they even did lighting at that time. Most of his stuff are exteriors, but that's a major situation. So during that time, Wayne did photography, starts taking his travel photography situation to all kinds of places. He goes to Mexico. He goes to like China, goes to Australia. And then from Australia out into the Pacific I mean, the dude is a world traveler now even more. And he's in he's only in his 30s, right? He's barely touching 30 in 1855. So damn, dude. Good for you, Augustus Le Plongeon. And he's honing his craft, right? He's he's getting better and better at taking photos in faraway places. So at this time, in the early 1860s, he moves back to South America again. This time he's in Peru and then he really starts focusing on archaeology. So he's going to be taking photographs, right? Being a travel photographer, but now focusing on archaeological sites. And he does a bunch of stuff in, in Peru. I believe he works in Peru at this time for the better part of eight years. I could be a little off on that one, but the story of Augustus Le Plongeon is definitely one of long term travel. The guy goes kind of place to place and stays a very long time. But in Peru, he's looking at like the Tiwanaku culture. And you can still what's cool, you guys, is you can still like Google and find uh, a bunch of these images. Really, really nice. Right. And of course, for archaeologists, some of these images are doubly valuable because he may have taken photos of things that have been looted are no longer there or are in much better shape then than they are now right he's taken these things in like the 1860s 50s and 60s so that's what 150 years there can be a lot of weathering on these various stone structures in 150 years so these photos can be very precious so again i mean I've told you this really awesome story. He sounds like a really cool guy. I think I would love to meet him. How can I possibly? Why, why am I putting him on the pseudo archaeology podcast? Like, dude, let this guy go in peace. Well, when we come back, we'll talk about some of his influences. Welcome back to the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, episode 136. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Kinkella, and we have been discussing Augustus Le Plongeon and really how much of a basically completely awesome dude he was. Now, when we left off, 
he was in Peru being awesome, taking photos of Tiwanaku archaeological sites. But I had hinted that some of his influences were maybe not so great. Now, I think what's interesting is he kind of has two influences. And I think when you look at these, it really tells a lot about what Augustus Le Plongeon, kind of where he goes as the years wear on. Now, one of his big influences, first, first and foremost, are Stevens and Catherwood. This is John Lloyd Stevens and Frederick Catherwood. These guys are famous explorers of the Maya world, right? Stevens and Catherwood. Stevens was a New York lawyer who was also just a very good writer. And Catherwood was an amazing artist who would do these photorealistic images. Those two were really the first, I would say, kind of scientific minded people to explore the Yucatan, to explore the world of the Maya. And they're going to do this in the 1830s and 1840s. Right. So this at this time, it's going to be about 20 years in the past from where we are hanging with Augustus Le Plongeon, right? At this point, we're now in the 1860s or so. So this is 20 years past. And what Stevens and Catherwood did is they published travel books. The most famous one is called Incidents of Travel in the Yucatan. And it just, it blew open the whole Maya world for the rest of the world, right? And this, if you guys are interested in the story of Stevens and Catherwood, which is fascinating in its own right. I love Stevens and Catherwood. I might even just do a podcast on them at some point, even though they're not pseudo-archaeologists. I just love them. I'll just do it out of love, dude, because that's why I'm here, to, to bring love. If you're interested in their story, you can also read the book Jungle of Stone. I forget the author, but it just came out. No, it came out maybe seven or eight years ago. Really great biography of these two just sort of telling their life story together interesting interesting i highly i dug it man i highly recommend it but anyway augustus le plongeon was influenced by this it makes sense he's like ooh, I want, i'll do that but with photos right and he's gonna write as we'll see he's gonna write books but his other influence brassur de borbor <sighs> remember that guy from a couple podcasts ago oh, he was he was the guy who was into the Maya as well and and very much into the Maya hieroglyphics. But he brought in Atlantis, man, you know, just saying the word at this point. I'm like, oh, because we were doing so well. Everything is so cool. We're talking about all these amazing places that Augustus Le Plongeon has traveled and his experiences and he's getting good with photography, man. Good for him. But then talk about the ultimate sidetrack. It's like, oh, and he's, you know, he's looking at Stevenson Catherwood and kind of going to be the next generation of that. It's going to use photography instead of drawing. It's going to be so great. But then it's like, now we got to stick on Atlantis. Oh, so. As he's stewing with that and as he's getting better as his photography, when we last left him, he was in Peru, right? goes back to San Francisco and he's kind of selling himself now, I think, as kind of a kind of an archaeologist, more or less for the time. We would you know, more correctly now call him an antiquarian or this kind of thing. And he would give lectures, I think, kind of do the lecture circuit and he can show his photos, which would be a very, very cool thing at that time. Right now we're up to like 1870. The dude's like 45 <laughs> after San Francisco. He goes back to. England 
and then starts working with the British Museum. Now we're up to 1871. This is important because let's see if we do the math. I got to get this right. 25, 70. He's 46. I believe 1871 makes him 46. He is then going to meet and marry Alice Dixon, who is 26 years younger than him. So he's 46 and she's 20. And so she marries her. I believe she's the daughter of like a photographer or something in that world. And now they're like a team, right? It's Augustus Le Plongeon and Alice Dixon Le Plongeon. And they're together now going to the Yucatan. Okay, now this is the part I knew about him from before. So when I look up these various people to talk about, I kind of go off of stuff I've heard or just stuff that sounds interesting to me. I forget, you know, I think that the name Augustus Le Plongeon came up when I was researching Bresser de Bourbourg. And, you know, I was like, oh, right, Augustus Le Plongeon. I got to do one with him at some point because of his his Maya stuff. Now, they're going to the Yucatan and they're kind of now he's really retracing Stevens and Catherwood's stuff. You know, by this point, they're about 30 years after Stevens and Catherwood. 1873, when they go to Nassau, he's now 48. His young wife is 22. They start in the in the northern Yucatan. The main town in the northern Yucatan is Merida, colonial town. I highly recommend going there. I've been there. It's it's a very pretty. It's a cool town, man. It's a good base of operations if you're into looking at the kind of the the Maya world of the northern Yucatan. And I think it was then, too. Of course, as soon as they get there, Alice gets sick with malaria. Uh, but while they're there, they learn Yucatec Mayan. Yucatec Mayan is a is one of the major Maya dialects, right? There's a handful. There, there's a lot of different Maya kind of sub, you know, little dialects and stuff. And Yucatec's one of the biggies. I would say it's probably one of the top three. So they learn the language. Good for them, right? That's really going to get them far in terms of dealing with the local Maya people, in terms of maybe attempting to learn a bit more about the Maya sites. Like that's, that's a big deal. You got, look how much they do right. You know, look how far ahead, honestly, that Augustus Le Plongeon is and, and Alice from many others at the time. They're only held back by their stupid Atlantis idea. It's so sad. They got so much going for them. So now, of course, they are specifically looking for links between the Maya and Atlantis and Egypt. Uh, right. So so this is their kind of focus. Now, while they're there, speaking of another Forrest Gump moment, this is also the time of the Maya caste war, which is which has its own historical implications. This is, of course, a time of of great tension in that area and he he and his wife have to deal with that as they go through it they head off to chichen itza chichen itza is probably the most famous post-classic maya site of them all home to the sacred cenote the the most famous of all cenotes easily again for the northern yucatan it's chichen itza is huge and in terms of the history of the maya it's extremely important maya site i would almost rank it as the single most important Maya site in terms of having more research done in the next 10 or 20 years from today. You know, I think that 
more research at that one specific site might give us more mileage than almost anything else. That's how important Chichen Itza turns out to be. So Leipold John and his wife go there and they just start taking fantastic photos. Good for them. They are very scientific in terms of really just the coverage with their photos. They experiment with 3D photos. Have you guys ever seen any of those, those really old 3D photos? You know, you kind of look through the special look through thing and it gives you a three dimensional image. It's really great. So they do all this stuff in like 1875. Great recording of things. They also do some excavations a little bit, you know, just as they would. This isn't going to be massive excavations, but they're going to excavate. They're going to make some really great maps and they're going to do like molds of the various like reliefs on the buildings and stuff there. So in terms of their recording, great. They also do some of this at Ushmal, which is another northern Yucatan post-classic Maya site. Ushmal is also very unique. That's also a great place. I highly recommend you guys get to Ushmal at some point. Both of those sites are great. Chichen Itza today is actually very touristy, which is kind of a letdown. And I guarantee you, if you go there, you are going to boil. Definitely bring water. You're going to be there at the probably in the summer at like the height at noon and it's hot and it's full of people. Ushmal, a lot fewer people, really interesting site. I dig it. I haven't been there and I haven't been to Ushmal in decades. I miss it. That's that would probably be the main one I'd go to if I was back in the northern Yucatan. That and Koba. Those are good. Great my sites to visit. Anyway, they're recording this and when they're there, they find what we now call a chakmul. Why do we call it a chakmul? Because Augustus and his wife called it a chakmul. I think this is one of his biggest claims to fame. He labeled a chakmul a chakmul. What is a chakmul? You guys have probably seen these. They're hard for me to explain just with words, you know, but they're a, a sculpted figure of a person that's kind of sitting with their knees up, laying back on their elbows with with their head turned to the side and and like their stomach is flat. So you can see that their stomach is supposed to be like an offering place. And that's ultimately ultimately what it is. It's sort of an offering table. This image is very like every tourist postcard has an image of a chalk mole. You know, from the from the northern Yucatan. Other sites have these, but Chichen Itza is kind of the most famous for it. There's a chakmul on top of one of the pyramids there, top of the Temple of the Warriors. So those he found one and he named it that because he knew Yucatec. You know, now the name is made up. It has nothing to do with what the Maya originally called them, but the name totally stuck. So chakmuls are called chakmuls because of Augustus Le Plongeon and Alice. In terms of what we know now, again, yes, they're offering tables. The Aztec had them as well. Later, I think in the Aztec sense, there's going to be more of a human sacrifice element. You know, maybe you do actually cut a heart out and put it on a chalk mule, you know, in the Aztec world. In the Maya world, it's usually more. For my feeling of things, it's not as harsh. So I could believe it if there's not necessarily a human sacrifice component in the Maya world. There could be, but there also could not be. I'm cool with it either way, but this is very much a post-classic thing. And I keep saying post-classic, the post-classic Maya are from about 
oh, about 950 AD until the Spanish come in like 1520. So it's it's that period of time. And Chichen Itza is a little bit earlier. Like this stuff is from eh, like 950 to about 1250 or so. That's that's the date of kind of Chichen Itza at its height. They also, during this time, take a couple treks to Belize, which is near and dear to my heart. And in terms of some of the research I did, when we come back, some cool stuff I found concerning the La Plongeons in Belize. Hello, and welcome back to the Pseudo-Archaeology Podcast, episode 136, and we are talking about Augustus Le Plongeon. And when we last left, they were in the Yucatan, taking some really great photos, really great photos of some of the sites they're working at, such as Chichen Itza and Uxmal. But I had teased that they had also taken some trips to Belize. Now, me, being a Belize archaeologist and have traveled to Belize, you know, like, 18 times or something like that. I'm like, dude, I got I got to learn a little more about this. I got to see about the Le Plongeons in Belize. And I so I googled, you guessed it, Le Plongeon Belize, and a couple of their photos came up, right? From the time they're dated is 1889. Now, who knows if that was the year they were taken, the year that they were published, you know, I don't know, but it's it's a fair ball. It's right in there. I looked at them closely and you guys can find this. There's a couple online. There's one that is definitely on the coast of Belize. It could be, it could be like Ambergris Key, one of the main islands, or it could just be the coast of Belize city. It's hard to, you know, it's very hard to say. It's just a coastal like palm tree scene. Right. But the one that really caught my eye, they also took one that's just labeled Belize river. And it's where I think it's, I think it's where the swing bridge is now, which is a, famous landmark in Belize. I think it's a bridge that was there before the swing bridge. The swing bridge is called the swing bridge because it opens, it turns in the center. It turns sideways. So bigger boats can go through, but right next to it, I I'm pretty sure it's the, it was the water taxi building. And the reason why it sort of took my breath away is the water taxi building is where one of the stories I told with my friend Cam back in episode 119, right? Where he wanted me to go to the island so bad and he ended up having to go on a taxi himself. That was at the water taxi station. And I'm pretty sure the image has the water taxi station in it. You know, I could be a little wrong because many of those buildings look the same, but good God, it's if it's a different building and they probably have all burned down 20 times too. But if you're curious about what the water taxi station looked like where Cam and I had our sort of silly showdown about where I, I told him I had to get back to my work on the project and he wanted to go to the islands that 1889 photo shows what the water taxi station looks like just really a building on the water with some boats in front you know so it really i believe the scientific term is it it gave me pause my friends it was a cool moment i'm like oh my god i think it was alice who took the photo i'm like alice le plongeon took a photo of something that over a hundred years later i would have an experience at so it's cool when this stuff kind of come, comes together. Now, 
after they do their work amongst the Maya, which is several years. And like I keep saying, great photos. They finally end up for the last part of Le Plongeon's life in New York, right into the 1880s and kind of beyond. And this is when Le Plongeon is now writing books about his experiences. And of course, it's such a bummer because he's just shoving in basically a pre-recorded story into stuff he finds. Right. He talks about what's interesting is he talks about how the Maya are actually the original culture. So he actually votes for the Maya as the very first. And his idea is that the is that uh, civilization began in the Maya world and then it bled out to Atlantis and then it hopscotch from Atlantis over to Egypt. So in his mind, the Maya were first. Right. And he talks about how there's also he sees Freemason symbols and the Maya stuff, which is, of course, ludicrous and has nothing to do with reality. And he published these. Right. He 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 and his wife also make up like a story, I think, while they're down there, you know, they're, they're in the jungle. And I know what this like. You're there for months. You're bored. It's hot outside every day. You're getting over malaria and you just start to think a little bit of funky thoughts. And so they make this whole story up about Queen Moo and Prince Chakmul and how they were rulers of this place. I mean, it's just fantasy, right? They're just making this stuff up, but they're attaching it to stuff as they find it. And of course, since they're into this story, they're like, oh, look, I, f- I found this new mural. It's obviously Queen Moo, right? You know what I mean? They're sort of feeding themselves off of whatever they find. They could find anything. As time goes on, they take these characters and again, Le Plajon writes more books. One of them is Queen Mu and the Egyptian Sphinx, right? He writes it in 1896. And again, it just shows you these are just flights of fancy. Now, if they were if they were movie scripts today, they could be awesome, right? They could be like the mummy. You know, these could be killer stories, but they are not factual. There's nothing. There's no reality in this. And that's the problem. And actually, they were. They were a a good two decades too late on this. You know, by the time they're writing up these flights of fancy stories in the 1880s, it's just too late. And actually, the scientific community of the time ridiculed them at the time. But Le Plongeon just stuck to his guns about this stuff for the rest of his life. It's kind of sad. It's really too bad. And he was really, of course, mainstream science was never behind him. Mainstream archaeology just always thought he was a total crock. But while most thought he was crazy, you know who he influenced? Ignatius Donnelly. Oh, you see what I'm saying? You see? Horrible ideas never die. It's like somebody picks them up. You know, it's like if you're a Doctor Who fan, you think the master's dead and then someone else picks up the ring. You know what I mean? Never dies. So it's the same. It's like hilarious. Nasius Donnelly. Remember him? You know, the U.S. senator who writes about Egypt in 1881. See, it's it's sorry, writes about Atlantis. Right. 1881. It's like. Oh, my God. So. So so pseudo archaeology world picks him up and then and then continues with him. And I do. I do feel that Augustus Le Plonchon is treated a little poorly 
in archaeology because we can all agree his ideas are terrible, right? They're just straight up just foolish fantasy. But his data is good, right? And by data, I mean his photos. Like his photos are great. His data collection is really good. And that's always okay in the archaeology world. If you collect good data, no matter what it is, if you collect good data, good for you. That is the cornerstone of archaeology. It was his interpretations that were terrible. You know, oh, this is Freemasons in Atlantis. Of course it's not. But what's great is if you collect good data, then we can use their data today. Like his photos are indispensable now because he's taken photos of stuff that either no longer exists or has rotted away. So that's cool. It's so much better than what it usually is the other way around, which is no data and terrible ideas, right? Like Graham Hancock has neither, right? Just a total charlatan. So Augustus Le Plonchon is not. Augustus Le Plonchon is much better than Graham Hancock. You know, he did real work and he was really trying. And there's excuses for him. There's, there's no excuse for him to stick to his guns as much as he did. He, he was way too headstrong. You know, he, he should have listened to criticism and he could have he could have come around, but he didn't. And. You know, in in the end with him. I kind of like. I kind of have like a backwards respect, you know, for him and his wife and the photos that they took and just he's such an interesting dude. I mean, think of the stuff he did. He was in a shipwreck. He was in the gold rush. He was in the cast war. He learned how to take photos when photos were a brand new thing. He traveled the world. I mean, that's an interesting guy. But he commits one major sin, right? And the sin is what I've come to find is, is at the cornerstone of all pseudo-archaeology. This is really it, my friends. It's that this need to tell a prefabricated story. That's the whole thing. Look at every pra practitioner of pseudo-archaeology. They're out to tell a false story, right? That's And they have like this need to tell this false story. In this case, Le Plongeon wanted to tell the story of the Maya were the first civilization. And then they went from there to Atlantis to Egypt, right? That's obviously false. There's no facts supporting that whatsoever. Atlantis is a myth and Egypt is older than the Maya. But he wouldn't back down. He, he's done what every single pseudo-archaeologist does. Just stuck with his stupid story, right? And just never wavered. And I think it's super interesting that line between where facts are just left and it's all belief, right? And that's all this pseudo-archaeology world is. It's just belief. It's belief in a false story and then taking facts in the world and just shoving them in. That's all it is. But unfortunately, a lot of people like the fake story in the first place. But I know you're not one of them. And with that... I'll talk to you guys next time. 
Thanks for listening to the Pseudo Archaeology Podcast. Please like and subscribe wherever you like and subscribe. And if you have questions for me, Dr. Andrew Kinkella, feel free to reach out using the links below or go to my YouTube channel, Kinkella Teaches Archaeology. See you guys next time. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Rachel Roden. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.